Welcome to the Photo Banter Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gagne, and on today's podcast, I speak with photographer Sam Jones. Sam has worked with clients such as Vanity Fair, Men's Journal, Fortune, and Rolling Stone, to name a few. In this interview, I speak to Sam about growing up skateboarding in California and what led him to pursue a career in photography. I also speak to Sam about his popular Netflix show titled Off Camera, where he sits down with people such as Robert Downey Jr., Jeff Bridges, Cindy Crawford, and Tony Hawk to discuss their careers, lives, and just a lot of different things. It's a really interesting interview show, Um, been on Netflix for a while. And I also speak to Sam about um, photographing Bob Dylan for the cover of Rolling Stone. Um, He also worked with Bob Dylan on a little documentary film. Uh, Really interesting stuff. Um, Sam's a guy whose work I've been um, following for a while and been a fan of his show. Um, So I was really interested to get a chance to speak with him about everything he's done. Um, He's kind of dabbled in a lot of different things, photography, his Netflix show, filmmaking. Um, So really interesting guy. Um, So I hope you guys enjoy this one. And thanks so much for listening. All right. Well, Sam Jones, uh, welcome to the podcast, man. Excited to talk to you for a lot of reasons. A fellow skateboarder, photographer. You got a really cool like uh, interview conversation show yourself off camera. So I was excited to dive into it. Uh, but to start off, I was looking at your Instagram, man. I was jealous. I saw you were recently uh, skating with Christian Hasoy. You guys were skating yeah. with the, the reverse combi. Uh, how was that? I hadn't uh, heard about the reverse combi. It's amazing. It's huge. And, you know, I haven't skated a bowl that big in a long time. So my legs were jelly after like five runs because I think it's 13 feet deep. Um, when I was uh, I, like mid 80s, late 80s, uh, the, la- the real combi pool was still there in Upland Skate Park. And that was about a half hour from my house. So we would skate that a lot. And I was in a couple contests in that pool. And it terrified me back then as a kid, and it, it still terrifies me now. You know, it's just a huge bowl. Um, but it was re- like because of COVID, the whole park was shut down. And uh, because I was working with Christian Soy, they they let us use the park. Okay. So I showed up early so I could have a chance to skate it before anyone got there. And you know, you never get a chance like that. Like, I, I think when that park's open, that pool's filled the whole time. And, you know, that it's, it's a much different thing to be able to go and work it yourself without, you know, without having 90 skaters trying to drop in at the same time. So, yeah. it, I mean, I, I wish I could go five times in a row and get my legs back for something that big because it was super fun, but it was scary. Yeah, it's pretty wild now. Like, I mean, I started skateboarding in the 90s and there's just so many more skate parks just kind of like across the country now. Like I live in Massachusetts and they're building more and more parks. I know going out to LA, it seems like they're popping up new parks like all the time, pretty much. Well, yeah, I mean, not LA so much. Uh, We're still, we still just have a few spots and they're not great, but uh, Orange County and San Diego County, it's like, there's a park every block. It's crazy, especially San Diego. Yeah. Did you pretty, did you grow up skateboarding like uh, pretty early on in your life? I did. Um, when I when I started, it was the first wave of skate parks in California. So Concrete Wave, Skatopia, the Big O, um, you know, Marina, Reseda, and uh, you know that lasted that lasted until I was probably 
by the time I was a junior or a senior in high school, every park had closed except Del Mar and Upland. Mm -hmm. And I started competing in Castle, which is the California Amateur Skateboard League, started by Frank Hawk, yeah. Tony's father. And, uh, and you know, competed in street skating, uh, vert, and, and freestyle, actually. Everyone kind of did everything back then. And then everything. ramps and had a pretty good ramp in Fullerton where I was from super slippery but it was uh, it was you know for the time it was really solid and good and Lester Kasai skated there every day and Neil Blender and um, it was a super super great scene back then did you have like dreams of becoming like a pro skateboarder like growing up or oh totally I mean I got sponsored by a shop which meant I got free boards and they would you know drive us to the contest and give us pizza and but it was funny, you know, even then, because some of my friends were pros, like one of my best friends growing up was Neil Blender. And wow, he was so much better than me and so much naturally better that, you know, I, I think I think I knew that I that I had this limit of how bad I wanted to get hurt, which <laughs> I didn't have that that body commitment level. But, yeah, I would I would entertain dreams of that. And. Um, I got, I got pretty good. Um, like I could do backside ollies out of vert and airs and inverts and that kind of stuff. But, but uh, then you'd skate with the, cause, cause where I grew up, you just would end up at a session and the, you know, you'd be at Fallbrook and there'd be Gator, or there'd be, you know, Tony or whatever. And so you'd realize the, the gap between your ability and, and uh, the pros. Yeah, man. I know you've interviewed Tony Hawk before on your show and uh, that guy, I, I mean, I've talked about it before. It's like watching that dude in his 50s, like still skate his ramp. It's mind blowing on a weekly basis on his Instagram, just seeing like what he's still doing at his age. It's pretty much it's insane. I know it makes no sense watching him skate. It, uh, it, it It's it's like he is still, you know, he is still in some ways leading like he's still inventing new tricks. He's still doing things that nobody else will try across that massive eight foot channel. Yeah. It, it's terrifying and, and amazing at the same time. And, you know, funny enough um, in the last maybe three years, I've become really close with Mike McGill and Steve Cavallaro because we all ride motocross together mm. and met them, met Mike through Tony uh, at one of his, uh, dinner party things and uh and we started riding motocross together and uh and so i go i still go to parks with those guys and what they all can do in their 50s is incredible and it's sort of like a testament to um to if you if you have a skill if you have a love if you have a passion or a discipline that you've worked on um the the best thing is to just keep doing it because if you stop doing it, I mean, it's that stupid cliche of you, you know, use it or lose it is totally true because these guys just make skating a part of their weekly lives or motocross riding or whatever. And none of them have real jobs, which makes it easier for them. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, like seeing all the things that I used to, you know, spend the majority of my day doing which whether it was playing music or skating or riding motorcycles um uh you know kids and marriage and all that stuff get in the way and and uh 
and you lose that stuff. So it, for me, it's like I'm barely hanging on and trying to not break up my body, but still enjoy it. Oh, trust me, man. I know. Like I, I, I skated a ton. Like obviously, like growing up as a young kid into high school and then kind of into college. But then, yeah, life takes over, and you gotta figure out how to make money and make a living. And I, I set up a new complete like during COVID, like over the summer. And I was like, all right, I'm gonna get back out there and get my flat ground back. And it was like, man, it was it was really from starting from scratch again, man. It was it was an uphill battle, but still fun for sure. Yeah, it, it, the gravity thing is weird too. Like, <laughs> just ollieing up a curb now is so much harder than it used to be. You know, yeah, d- definitely. And uh, I guess in terms of like photography, how did you kind of discover photography? Did you kind of get into that like later after skateboarding, or how did that kind of come into your life? No, you know, funny enough, it's it's a story that has its roots in skateboarding as well. Uh, Neil Blender got me into photography because he was into it. And, uh, you know, he would, he would, he would shoot stuff when he was at the parks or at ramps or at contests. And he did, you know, for GNS and for Transworld, occasionally he would do a little story for them and shoot pictures. And so he, he just was into photography mm-hmm. and, and he, he had a band. And so they'd do their own pictures for that. And, so um, it wasn't until I was a junior at college. Um, I went to Cal State Fullerton and I, I had been an English major and an art major and neither of them stuck and I didn't know what I was doing. And then I took a photography class and right around that time I was hanging out with the blenders a lot, Neil and his brother, Brian, and we were riding motorcycles and skating. And Neil lived literally across the street from the college and there were these great curbs. So we would go skate these curbs in the parking lot of the school. And um, so I took this photography class and, and, um, and he helped me out. He was like, you know, he let me use his camera. He showed me how chromes work. He showed me how filter, how you can filter stuff, how, how a flash off camera can look better than a flash on camera. Like, and as I was doing this, I was also getting interested in photojournalism and, and kind of studying the history of that, which I liked. I liked the idea of, especially these street photographers like Andre Cortez and um, Cartier-Bresson, that, that you could find art in the most um, ordinary places, mm-hmm. which, which really dovetailed with the skateboarding thing of, of making kind of your own little scene and just finding, you know, cool, cool moments or cool art, uh, th- seeing, seeing, ordinary things in a new way. And, and that was definitely a skateboarding thing. And then, and then it related to like, when I saw the pictures of Cartier-Bresson, like even the, the one, the most famous one of the kid jumping over the, the still water and he's about to break the water. That looked like a skate photo to me. Yeah. You know, it was like, oh yeah, like life is really cool. And, and, a, and with a camera, you can capture that feeling. And so like, I remember the first few assignments I turned in for my first college class, uh, we're at Fallbrook at the at the big half pipe, and it's like Jason Jesse and weirdly enough Mark Rogowski and um, and Neil, uh, and that's where I learned about shutter drag, and I learned about you know shooting chromes at at dusk and how to how to you had to read your light meter, and so I, I it was it was sort of like um, a super fast education 
Uh, what that, did your what do your professors think when you turn in skate photos? Because I I remember going to college and I at that time like I all I wanted to shoot was skating and that's all I was shooting and like some professors like didn't get it they're like because they were they're thinking like traditional route like teaching you how to like shoot for a newspaper or something like what do you remember about this kind of going to school and like shooting submitting skate photos and stuff I guess yeah I, I mean I, the, the recollections I have were that the the photojournalism department at my college was pretty traditional and the school had a daily newspaper and won all kinds of journalism awards. So what they wanted to see was a giant variety. And, and I, I think that, I think, you know, the, I, you know, I, I don't want to bag on any of those professors because no. got where I am. Uh, but I think that they weren't looking for uh, anything really new. They were looking for the students to be able to turn in things that that they dis that that they deemed um, traditional for yeah. what a photojournalism education would be. So, um, so yeah, the skate photos. Uh, I, I probably stopped turning those in pretty quick. <laughs> but, and it was like, well, you know, once you'd done that trick and, and done the shutter drag and yeah. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world, but you know, then it was like, okay, now you got to go down to the fish market and photograph uh, people, you know, an industry of fishermen at four in the morning. So well, I, I wasn't going to turn in skate photos at that point. Definitely. And I guess once you got out of school, like, did you kind of have an idea of like what you wanted to do with your photography? Like obviously looking at your website now, it's a lot of portraiture and you do entertainment work and a bunch of other stuff. But what, what was kind of your first step into the photo business, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I had I I knew what I knew from the school. One of the great things, there were two great things about my school. Number one was I had this one professor named Mark Foster. Excuse me. Sorry. Uh, I had this professor named Mark Boster, who was a working LA Times photographer, who actually just retired a few years ago. He's um, and he was sort of my first cheerleader, someone who saw in my work something a little, a little more, um, I don't know, a little different than than some of the other students. And so he really encouraged me. And then the fact that there was a a daily newspaper that um, that we had to we had to constantly churn out work for. So by the time I finished college, I had already submitted a few pictures to the Associated Press. Like our school played um, in the NC2A basketball tournament. So I ended up making a few pictures that that uh, the Associated Press picked up. And so I made, you know, 50 bucks or something like that when they licensed a photo of mine. And so when I left school, the only thing I knew to do was, was to try to get photojournalism work. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so I just started out as a stringer, which is a glorified word for, you know, a freelancer at the Associated Press. And, um, and you know, just sort, of, just sort of bullied my way into the job. I, I would call them when I thought I had something interesting and, and drive up there and, and uh, you know, submit my stuff. And eventually I got, I got lucky because they saw, they saw a whole bunch of my basketball pictures and they were like, oh, this kid can shoot basketball and make people in focus, which is not, you know, it's not the easiest thing to do. Um, and I had done it a bunch in college. So they gave me an opportunity to go shoot some Lakers games. And, wow. uh, and, and then once I proved that I could be fairly reliable, they started calling me for assignments. And, 
it paid nothing. Like I remember I once did a stretch of 62 days in a row uh, doing an assignment every day. And I think I got a check for $700. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, and the the check on the back of the check, it said uh, endorsee signifies transfer of copyright. So just by endorsing your check, you're giving up your work. You know, an agent would, you know, not be very happy about that practice, but, but it was great. And so, so I went into this, I I got a a loft in downtown LA and just started photographing for the Associated Press. And, um, and and I I think my biggest attribute was I was always available and I lived like two miles from the bureau. So no matter when they called me, I had this roommate who was a chef and he worked till late at night. He worked at Michelle Richard's restaurant called Citrus. So he'd work till like two in the morning. Um, and I'm such a deep sleeper, especially back then that I would never hear the phone. So the editor, the photo editor of the Associated Press developed this whole relationship with my roommate who would answer the phone and half asleep right down where I had to be for the day. And, and sometimes I'd hear him and the, the, my roommate's name was Scott and, and the editor's name was Herb Hemming. And Herb had this funny, funny voice. And he, hi, Scott. And, Herb, and Scott would be like, hi, Herb. <laughs> and then he'd give Scott the assignment for the day. And then I'd go out and I'd photograph a city council meeting or a, wow. you know, something at the LA Convention Center. And I'd end up at Dodger Stadium that night. And, yeah, because that's all like pre-email days, right? Oh, yeah. It was like, you know, I, I remember getting, you know, literally coming back to my loft and there's a piece of paper taped to the refrigerator. It says you have to be at Santa Anita today at three to shoot the feature race, the horse race, you know, it is wild to think, man. Like, I mean, I think back, like, like when I was in high school, that's when we first started getting cell phones and stuff. And it's really, I mean, it's not that long ago, but to think about like how the world operated back then compared to now where everyone's just instantly uh, reachable via whatever email or Instagram. It's just like, it's amazing that stuff got done back there. Everything was just on the phone pretty much. Yeah. And fun fact, the Associated Press was the first time I used a cell phone. Okay. Probably 1991 or something like that. 1990, 1990. You guys have that, that brick of the, the old Motorola. And you could you could check one out if you were going to do something where they thought they might need to reach you. And uh, and the thing I remember about it was it never dropped calls. Like back then, like it was the greatest coverage because there were probably, you know, a hundred phones in all of LA. Wow. That's amazing. And yeah. uh like, how do you kind of eventually you're doing your photojournalism thing with AP and stringing? Like, how, how do you kind of start getting into portraiture? What, what kind of attracted you to that work? Uh, I think, you know, two things happen. Um, I was a big fan of, of portrait artists that were pushing the, the medium. At that time, it was, you know, Andy Leibovitz and it was Richard Avedon and, and you know, some of the, some of the more out there, uh, images that Vanity Fair and Rolling Stone were commissioning that, that for me, again, they were kind of like skate photos because they were really, they, they, they celebrated a kind of a weird culture or, or they kind of brought, they tried to, they tried to really um, encapsulate what that person did in portraits. Um, And to me, it was, it was this idea of cinematic portraiture. And what happened was I got, after a few years of the Associated Press, I was kind of tired of photojournalism um, just, just in the sense of most of it wasn't that creative. It was more technical. Like if you went out and got a picture of the winning touchdown and focus at the Rose bowl, 
you were great, but it, it wasn't really artistic. Um, but occasionally they would send you to a hotel and you had 15 minutes to photograph Harrison Ford. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, it would be one of those days where Harrison is doing press for a new movie. So, you know, they rent a suite at the Four Seasons and they line up six photo shoots in a row and you, and you go in there and you're like, okay, sit by the window and, um, you know, put your arm here and, you know, trying to make a portrait really quickly and trying to make, you know, and at that point, as a photographer, I started looking at portraiture and being like, oh, what can I do with it? And I loved it. Um, and then I got a job being a still photographer on a movie called Bob Roberts, which Tim Robert, to which Tim Robbins wrote and directed and starred in. And he had seen my photojournalism work and he had known a producer who knew my girlfriend at the time and knew I would be cheap as hell. So <laughs> he invited me to come out to Pittsburgh and, and be a unit photographer on that film. And which was great because he had all his friends in it. So there was like 10 known actors that did cameos in that movie. And I just lied to him and said, I need to make a portrait for the movie. Okay. So I kind of made a portfolio by, cause I was, I was sitting there, I'm looking and I'm like, there's all these major actors and they're sitting around waiting which is what everyone does on a film set and they're doing nothing. And this was before cell phones, mm -hmm. literally like people sitting and talking and reading books and magazines and shooting the shit. So I would, you know, there's John Cusack and there's James Spader and Susan Sarandon and uh, Gore Vidal. Uh, and, and, and so I, I was just like, let's, let's make a picture. And they were like, great, it'll kill some time. And so I, I did that and I sort of, um, I glommed onto the DP uh, at the time, a really nice guy named Jean, uh, I'm gonna forget his last name, but he was this great handheld DP guy who really knew his lighting and knew how to like make lighting that, that really felt natural. Like I, I was so fascinated when he came into a location and he would change all the fluorescent bulbs out and be like, okay, we're ready to shoot. You know, just changing the right color temperature and, and or, or looking and going, I think I'd like the light to be coming in through these three windows. So he'd light an entire room from outdoors. And I really, I really like went to town on, on his education and he would look, I would, I would process my film and show it to him. And he would say, Oh, look, I remember specifically when I photographed Gore Vidal, he looked at it and he said, it's great, but you've got the light about a foot too high wow. shadow under his eye. And he's yeah. like, if you drop the light down a little bit and Gore Vidal sitting there the next week. So I'm like, Hey, let's do another shoot. And sure enough, like I got this wonderful opportunity to, to kind of learn on the job. And, and after I finished that, I, I was like, I like portraits so much more. And I think it's because, and obviously off camera is not, is a product of this, but I think I loved um, the interaction and the collaboration that I got in a, in a portrait. Cause it almost felt like, an, like I was, I don't know, not interviewing them, but, but having an exchange Yep. about art, about craft, about process, um, and making them a, a participant in, in the, whatever this, the scheme was of the day or the art or the, or the, um, you know, the caper, like making them a part of that was really fun, you know? And, and so when I, when I finished that movie, um, my thought was, I'm going to, I'm going to become, you know, a, a magazine editorial photographer. And I'm going to make cinematic portraiture. That was my goal. And I did a few more movies, uh, built up my portfolio a little bit more, but 
that's the worst work in the world, especially for me. I hated overnight shoots and, and, you know, being a unit photographer on films is like, you know, you're, you're trying to get a shot in little to no light and you're always in the way. And were you shooting like in those old, like back in the, the blimp? The, yeah. The, yeah. The, what they call it, the blimp, right? It's like, a, it's, it's, it's so you, yeah. So it makes it so people couldn't hear the shutter. Right. Yeah. And, and one guy made them all. So you'd bring him, you know, it, at the time a new camera came out, I think it was the Nikon, some 8,000 camera and you bring the camera to him and he, he'll make you the custom blimp and, and, and there's, buttons that supposed there's like one was mechanical that had a thing that actually pushed the shutter and yeah it was so impossible to use and to see and to focus i remember i did a movie in chicago and it was so cold it was a winter movie and we, we were doing a night outdoor scene and the blimp froze to my face yeah. you know like and literally it froze to my face and i pulled it off and had a like a scab on my head <laughs> That's when I was like, I'm done with this. I'm going to move on to photography that's indoors with people who want me to photograph them. Yeah. <laughs> or at least in the day, you know. Um, so, that yeah, that I, I sort of discovered the kind of photography I like by doing every other kind of photography. No, I think it's important as a photographer just to kind of dabble in a lot of stuff to figure out, like, what you like, what you're good at. And I would imagine, maybe I'm wrong, but, like, the times spend working for AP and doing these photojournalism things, do you feel like that experience has kind of even helped, like, influence the portrait work you do for magazines and stuff now at all? Oh, for sure. I mean, um, at the AP, there was, it was kind of a no excuse type of place. Uh, it was run at the time by this, like this guy that would have been fired for all kinds of uh, human resource violations. Not, not, I'm not saying he was a sexual yeah, yeah, yeah. or anything, but just, just the, the abuse that we all took as photographers back then was just sort of normal at that time, you know, to be yelled at and browbeaten and, and abused in front of your peers was, was sort of like his style. But um, what it taught you was, when you went out to do an assignment, you could never come back and say, I didn't get it because the person didn't show up or the weather was bad or they wouldn't let us into the room or you had to come back with a picture that was newsworthy. So when I started shooting for magazines, it was a great tool for problem solving. And no matter what the situation was or what the talent was saying they would or wouldn't do, um, that job helped me to think on my feet and and figure out solutions for yeah, sure definitely and yeah when you're kind of making that tra transition like you said you're going from photojournalism and then you realize you want to focus in uh portraiture like who were kind of some of the first like editorial clients you started to work with and like how are you kind of getting your name out there because i think you know a lot of photographers listening that's probably something you struggle with is like when you're first starting out no one knows who you are and you're trying to get your foot in the door somewhere like what was kind of your journey and process with that i guess yeah, I mean, I, I do not envy a photographer starting out now because the glut of pictures and of photographers and uh, just just the <laughs> the overwhelming uh, uh, amount of images we all see every day is it's crazy. I, and and I think the reason I was able to be successful is because I had this sort of willful um, delusion where I really consider myself part of a group of about 12 people who were trying to do what I was doing. Mm. 
<laughs> meaning that I would fly myself to New York and, and hear about somebody who was a friend of a friend who would let me sleep on their couch and I would go show my portfolio at magazines. And, um, and if I think, I think if I had any idea how many people were trying to do it, I might've given up, but I just thought I had figured out something that no one else had figured out, which was, you know, all the magazines back then had a portfolio drop-off policy, which is like, you drop your portfolio off on Tuesday, mm -hmm. you up on Friday. And I remember going into, because my idea was, okay, I'm from out of town. I have one portfolio. I can't drop it off. So I will, I will make my case over the phone to these photo editors. Let me just have 15 minutes. I can't drop off my portfolio, whatever. And, and I think a lot of people took pity on me or they, they decided to be nice and, or I was sort of relentless. And, and uh, but I remember one of my early meetings um i think it was with jody peckman at rolling stone Legend. he didn't hire me for years after but but i went in and there was a pile of portfolios in the corner and i'm like do you have to look through all those she goes i'm supposed to but i never do oh man <laughs> crushing dreams <laughs> and and so that was my strategy is that i would i would call and call and call and i would i would you know, just beg and say, look, and I would, I would say, I'm going to be there for one day. And I've, I want to meet you and work for you more than anything ever. Can you spare 15 minutes? And I would create these schedules that had no leeway, which would have me like running through the city, like thinking I could get a cab or thinking I could get on the subway. <laughs> and I couldn't. And I'd literally be running through the city and I would show up like I was wearing terrible clothes, <laughs> like a, like a, I remember for a while I was kind of wearing a, I don't know, an untucked shirt with a suit coat over it and a beret. I, it, was, it was the early nineties. It was terrible. And I'm sure I was like sweating like crazy and, and just kind of lost. And, but you were uh, hustling. So people probably respected that. They're like, this kid's getting after it. Well, and that was, that was sort of the, I mean, I was aware enough to know that that was, that was sort of the deal that, that, I wanted to let them know two things. Number one, that they hadn't heard the last of me. And number two, I would kind of do anything. Mm. And so I just went from meeting to meeting and I finally got a job. My first job ever for a magazine was for Entertainment Weekly. And they called me and, you know, instantly in your head, you're like picturing this great job. And then I find out, they tell me the job is to photograph uh, a parking space. Seriously? Yeah, I think it was... I'm trying to remember, it might have been Roseanne Barr's parking space. I, <laughs> I, it was somebody's parking space who apparently there was some feud over someone had parked in her space and she'd thrown a fit. And, and uh, Entertainment Weekly thought it'd be great to photograph this park, have a photo of the parking space. So they sent me out and I, can, I treated it like it was the cover of Rolling Stone. Like, yeah, I shot it from all different angles. I set up like a uh, a strobe with a filter on it to make it more mysterious. <laughs> I got a security guard and I said, Hey, walk through my photo. So it looks like you're patrolling the space. And, and <laughs> I think I sent him like 20 proof sheet or 20 rolls of chromes for this parking space. And, and, uh, and, you know, it ran this big in the back of the magazine. Uh, but then I got, I, I don't know, like a month later, they called me again and they gave me a, a small portrait and that was, that was the beginning. Wow. And I think, it was kind of like, I think they must've seen that. And they were like, 
this guy's crazy. He wants to work so bad. He sent us 20 rolls on a parking space. Oh, and I think shit. that made a huge difference. I think not having a, an ego and not thinking I belonged and not thinking they were ever going to hire me again made me, I mean, it was sort of like the first time I really understood my own personality, which was like, you know, uh, I've got to prove myself. And I don't think that's ever changed. Yeah. I still feel like every time I do anything, I have to prove myself all over again. Definitely. You know? And did, did it kind of take you a while to find your voice as a photographer? And like, how do you kind of describe your approach to portraiture, I guess, these days? And has it changed much over the course of your career, you think? Uh, you know, it took me forever. And I think, I think finding a voice or a style is something that uh, like, if you're honest about it, you don't, you don't make it up. You don't design it. it. You sort of come to it by realizing that this is the only kind of work you can do. And I remember back when I was um, starting to work a lot, there was, you know, there was this photographer named Chip Simons and he was getting a ton of work because he was shooting everything with a fisheye lens and putting like three different gel lights. And it was, and you'd see it and be like, whoa, that guy's like super amazing. You know, he's, he, he's transforming an, a regular office building portrait into this weird, cool thing, you know? But the truth was it was a gimmick and he, he probably had a shit ton of work for two years and then dried up. It. And then like, you know, Peggy Sirota, like you could always tell her photographs. It was like turning adults into children. And, um, and that was super, you know, she got a, a ton of work for that and was a really good photographer anyway. So she was able to trans like, transform out of that. But, but point being like, I would look at that stuff and go, I'm never going to get that traction because I don't have a signature style. I don't have a thing I'm doing. And it took me a long time to realize that my style was subject driven. So, and again, this harkens forward to off camera. I think that, I think that my, uh, my interest as a photographer was in listening to the person and trying to bring something out about their personality. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, in college I was an editorial cartoonist and then I worked for the Associated Press. So I got really adept at trying to figure out how one frame could tell a whole story. And so if you look at my portraits at the height of my magazine stuff, like the Steve Martin and the banana peels or Chris Rock with the fire hose, um, or even the Martin short with all the cats, they're, they're like editorial uh, one panel cartoons, you know, like the New Yorker car cartoons with the captions, um, where I was really trying to pull a specific aspect of that person's personality out and make a whole story about it that all fit in one frame. And that became my style. Um, but I wouldn't even call it a style. I would call it just, that's my, I guess I'm editorializing on who I think that person is. And I think as I got better as a photographer, I got more nuanced with that to where I could eventually do it with a black and white portrait that didn't even have any props or set or, or location or anything. Uh, and it was about listening to the subject. And so it took a long time for, me to seem like I had a style, I think, because um, I was really honing my my ability to listen and see who the who the person was. I really like the stuff. I, I really enjoy your work is like 
um, it's like timeless. Like a lot of the portraits, they're they're it's just really good light, good composition. It, like I go back to like like someone like Avedon, like his stuff is this. I, I would say there's not there's not like so much sauce. Like the guy you were talking about before, who's shooting fisheye and all these crazy lights. It's like tons of sauce, sauce, sauce. But like the stuff I really enjoy, it's just like good light and good composition is always going to be good, and you don't need all, all the tricks and stuff to go on top of it. You know? Yeah, I think one thing I discovered was that. Um, I also wasn't totally in control of when it was going to be a good photograph or not. And so much of that had to do with the subject and who they were. And, you know, some people are eminently photographable. And if you just get your own stuff out of the way, you get the sauce out of the way, as you're saying, um, and, and just sort of pay attention, you're going to make a good photograph. And other times it's like either you don't connect with that person or that person is just not, their, their skill lies in another area. And, and it's, it's, that's where you have to lean on your experience to make an interesting photograph. But, but that was a, that was an interesting discovery for me. And it, and it wasn't in, it didn't just apply to photography. It applied to filmmaking. It applied to my show. It applied to all kinds of pursuits, which is that um, there, there are, there's only so much you can control. Uh, and the, and the rest is sort of like, you know, good fortune and, um, good chemistry and, and the day, you know, and, and so I think for a long time, I missed out on that because I did want to have so much of a plan, you know, that brain of, I have to, I have to, uh, I have to produce something great, uh, wouldn't let me get out of the way. And, and funny enough, off camera, my TV show helped me a lot with that because I didn't have the time to, to do a regular photo shoot with any of these people. I wanted to spend most of my time with them talking to them. Mm -hmm. So at the end, it was like, God, we only have 15 minutes left to do this photograph. And it made me such a good photographer because uh, it made me throw out every possibility and focus on the thing I knew I could do. And, um, and, and, it's sort of a great thing to discover that you can just have a camera and go into a room and, and find something, you know, or say something. Definitely. And yeah, you met your, your show off camera, which I've been watching for years. Um, what kind of prompted you to start that? And like, uh, was there any ever hesitation of like, like, cause you're trying to do photography and then you're doing this. Do you ever worry about like people thinking you're not doing photography anymore? Or what's kind of been your journey with off camera? You know, I made peace a long time ago with the fact that I am like a multi-hyphenate person and those people have a hard time Mm -hmm. (laughs) because the, uh, you know, um, I ask, I ask for myself, honestly, it's something I worry about too, because like I'm a photographer, but then I'm doing this too, you know? Yeah, no, I think, I think that there's in all fields, you know, you have actors like this, you have Zach Braff who he's an actor and he's a writer and he's a director. And I think he's like the best thing he is as a director, but that's kind of the hardest work for him to get because we'll see him as an actor. And I, I think that I realized way early on that I was going to be somebody that was never going to be satisfied doing one thing for me the the biggest joy is in the, in the coming up of the, of the discovery process. So to be honest, the, the, period of photography I enjoyed the most was when I was totally hustling and scrambling. And, and when I made a picture it, and it looked to me like 
something I, I didn't know I could do, or it looked like somebody else's work that I admired or, or an accident, happy accident occurred. That was the greatest, you know, it's, it's, it's way less fun to know, you know, how to do something and go do it. Like it certainly looks good in the room. You can walk in and you make a, a picture and people look at him like, wow. And, but it's way more fun to have that wow feeling yourself, you know? And I remember, uh, right around the time that I decided to do the Wilco movie, that was the first time I realized like, oh yeah, like I want to have that same uh, excitement about, about the medium of documentary film. I, I think I can make a documentary. I like watching these things, you know, let's, mm-hmm. let me try to do it. And, and right around that time too, I also had this weird little radio show that I did. Uh, I had a house, a little cabin up in the woods about two hours outside of LA and they had a weird little gas station, pizza place, uh, video rental all in one. And the guy, the guy put up an amateur antenna and he, he had like a 200 CD changer. He put his collection of bad CDs in it and he would broadcast it. And that was the radio station up there. And because it was like a bowl of mountains, it's the only thing you could hear on the radio. So all 1500 people that lived up there could only get this station. And you were just kind of doing that for fun. That's going in like during the week. Yeah, so I, I had a, I had a music studio and I was like, Oh, I, I want to be a radio host. That'd be funny. And so I asked the guy if I could like give him a couple CDs to play every Saturday night between six and eight. And he said, yes. And so I, I would, in my studio in Santa Monica, I would make a radio show and I would interview my friends and, you know, like I, I interviewed a couple guys from Wilco and I interviewed a couple other musicians that I knew and um, and I'd play music and I had a I had a fake, you know, persona and everything. And and it was just a blast for me. And I loved it. And I found myself like doing that work instead of the work I was supposed to be doing because it was so much fun. Yeah. And I think I realized something then, like, oh, yeah, like I'm always going to be trying to do the thing that feels more like a hobby than the thing that feels like work. So then I I think I kind of realized then that that's what was going to happen to me, that I was going to keep pursuing things that seem, you know, fun. And, and, and off camera was the exact same thing. I was like, you know, um, because I loved podcasts at the time I loved when I started off camera, I loved this American life. And it was, Pretty early on in the podcast thing, Mark Marin was doing it. Yeah, because you've uh, been doing what off camera for like eight or nine years now. I started in 2013, okay, so yeah. it's not that podcasts weren't out there, but but there was it, it wasn't like it is now by any definitely period. like even within the last two years. Like I mean, I started mine like three and a half years ago, and from then to now, it, I see so many more people getting into it, which is cool because there's a lot of cool content out there. But uh, yeah, it has changed a lot. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's a funny thing because uh, uh, the ori- I remember the original conversation took place with another documentary filmmaker, and and look, I've had a pretty full documentary career already, and and a lot of the commercials I directed had a documentary feel to them because that's the kind of work I got after making a few films. So I've done a ton of interviewing, like a ton that people have never seen because it's for commercials or because it's you know, for weird projects or whatever, and, and had a lot of experience at it. So I was, I was talking to my friend, Chris Wilcha, who's a commercial director, but he also directed a season of This American Life when it was on television. And, and he's, you know, made docs as well. And, and he was like, what about podcasts? Do you like, 
do you like podcasts? Do you listen to podcasts? You know, he was really interested in podcasts. Yeah. At the time I was, I was doing this book project and I, I hired him to do the interview of myself and this musician. We were doing this book and, and we started talking about it. And I was like, well, if I was going to do a podcast, I'd film it just because why not? And then if I was going to do that, I'd probably photograph the person because they're, they're there anyway. And, and that'd be a cool way to, you know, to, to sort of, you know, make a, a visual presence around the podcast. And he's like, yeah, you should do that. So it was sort of like this weird, you know, what would my version of a podcast look like? And, and, um, and it was totally experimental. Like it didn't start out as a show. It started out as a website where you could, you could read it, watch it or listen to it. Like we also met a magazine. So we transcribed the whole interview, mm -hmm. photographs in the magazine. There was a magazine cover and you could watch it. You could listen to it. You could read it. And that was my thing. And crazy enough, the first attention it got were from these, um, these guys that, that worked, I think at FX who wanted to like, licensed the software of the platform I'd created for wow. like, you know, when they release a movie, like you could, you could have this thing where you could watch it, listen to it or read it. And it was this at the time it was, the, and again, no one knew where to put it. It wasn't a podcast. It wasn't a TV show. It wasn't really a magazine. It was like really hard to book guests. Cause they were like, well, what is it? Yeah. Like we get, we get emails from publicists saying we'd like our person to appear on the cover of your magazine and could you come to his house? And we're like, no, we film him in Santa Monica, you know, like, yeah. And again, I made it 10 times harder for myself because it was this undefined thing. Uh, but after, after I think about 11 of them or 13 of them, an editor friend of mine who was working at direct TV showed it to the, the bosses over at the audience network, the head of these, these two guys that were running this sort of wild west, uh, channel called the audience network, uh, which came for free on every direct TV box. Mm. And they were, they were like, we'll buy, we'll buy your shows and we'll air them and we'll make you a contract to make more. And it was shocking. Yeah. And all of a sudden it was a real thing with real agents involved and a contract and a, and a, you know, all that stuff. And, and I went all in, I like got a new building because we were shooting them and it wasn't soundproof. So you could like in the early episodes, like the, the first Robert Downey episode, if you listen carefully, you can hear the FedEx truck like backing up in the, in the alley outside and you could see the light changing on him. Yeah, yeah. He had skylights. And so we built a studio, um, rented a new building and built a studio to do it. And, um, and it's kind of went all in, which was a bold move because they only gave us a one year contract. And, and kind of my old hustling days, I was like, oh, you got hey, at the end of that one year, they're going to, they're going to up us again. And then I called in every favor I had for every famous person I knew and begged them to come do it. Like Matt Damon was our first guest in the new studio mm -hmm. and I begged him to come do it. And we, we were so not ready to shoot yet on the day he was available that the electrical panel wasn't done. And the power went out four different times during the, the taping and poor Matt just had to sit there in total darkness <laughs> while we had called an electrician and got him out. It was, it took like four hours Damn. to get out. You know what I mean? But I was like, you know what? I'm going to like, if you look at the first like episodes 14 through 32 and you look at the names we had there or, or like 11 through 32, 
you're like, oh yeah, like it was all crazy A list, and and it worked. And then we got this, we got they upped the number of episodes, and they gave us a new contract. And um, and now, because now it lives on Netflix, and then you you still have a website, and I saw on your website there's some type of subscription model, and then it's also like on Spotify and all those platforms. Is it? It's where does it primarily live now? I guess. Well, so we've been on hiatus since the pandemic started. So yep. we've been, you know, the podcast, we've been rerunning our old, like picking our favorite episodes and running them. Yep. And and the audience network went away. So the TV show element went away. And I had to make a decision at the beginning of last year, whether or not to pursue another network, mm-hmm. find another home for it. And I decided I was going to let it live just online for a while and see what I wanted to do for this year. Because I'd done 219 of them. And... Uh, so as it stands right now, um, I, I still ha- I still don't know if I'm going to bring it back in the same form uh, or do something different. Uh, but I've I've started like three films during the pandemic. Damn and, man, you really get after it, Sam. <laughs> well, well, I just you know I think after doing so many of them, uh, that same feeling set in, which is I know how to do this, but yep. uh, you know I would like to try something else and. And this pandemic has been actually great for that because it's allowed me to sit here without, without a bunch of, you know, upcoming work to, to focus on things I want to do. Cause I think, you know, you run into this thing a little bit. I think everyone runs into this when they have any kind of success at all, which is um, there can be just enough work dangling out there that it's, you know, when you're someone like me, I didn't grow up with money and I didn't grow up with any kind of idea that I'd be successful. So when someone calls and says, Hey, there's this job and it pays this much. I, I have a very hard time turning those things down. And what happens is you can, be, you can, it's kind of the tail wagging the dog. You can end up being in a place where you're not really doing the work you want to do, but, but you know, who are you to turn something down? That's so that's yeah. make, that's allows you to be an artist and, and is lucrative and, and they treat you really nicely. And, um, so, so this pandemic's been interesting to be able to actually have some headspace to think about what I want to do next. What, what do you think it is? Are you still interested in photography and editorial and all that stuff? Or what's, what, what's kind of got you interested right now? Well, I'd say I'm interested in all of it. <laughs> but I'm making, I'm making two documentaries right now um, that are in two different stages of completion. One we're still in production on, and one is we're kind of... Uh, you know, we're getting to the end of the edit process. And, and then I'm, I'm also, I've got, I've got some TV projects that'll hopefully start up when, when the pandemic's over. Uh, I, I'm not someone who wants to go work under COVID conditions if I don't have to. I, you know, I have many friends that are out filming things right now and it's, it's tough. It's tough. And not only is it tough, but like I did a few commercials through the pandemic and we did one that was, you know, it's all, it was all outdoors. There's a lot of motorcycle footage and um, even the indoor stuff was, was done, you know, in a way that it was remote except for the people that had to be indoors, but it sucked like wearing masks the whole time. No one can see your face or hear what you're saying. You're trying to direct off a monitor and, you know, it, it takes five minutes just to get the prop person to move the, yeah. the, the vase into the right place because you're trying to do it over the walkie talkie. And um, yeah. And, and so, it, and, and I think 
over, you know, hanging over all of that is the danger that maybe you're creating an environment where someone could get sick. And um, I know it's happened to two of my friends in the last month. They were on productions because they're traveling um, on different like ad campaign things. And it just just kind of happens. It's like a numbers game at some point. Like you're out there. For sure. You know, and I've got friends and that, uh, you know, I got a friend who's making a film right now, you know, a very, very big budget film. And they're taking every precaution and, and following every rule. And, um, and, and I, I, if anyone is safe, it's them and they'll, they, they'll probably get through it just fine. Just like the, the sports teams are, yep. uh, but it's, it's, you know, it, it's a tough way to work. And so for me, I'm taking the time to, to kind of almost to, to bring things back to, to more of a do it yourself place like these, this documentary, this one documentary I'm working on, it started out pre-pandemic. And so we were able to shoot a lot of it in person. And then the, the when COVID hit, we've developed all these different ways to keep going, like all right. ship cameras to the main subject and, and taught, you know, literally taught the subject of my film, how to use a red camera over <laughs> massively long zoom sessions. Get the white balance right. <laughs> I mean, audio and, and, you know, going in and changing the, the, you know, frame rate and the, and the compression and all that stuff. And and with varying levels of success, you know, like certainly some failures and some things. Are they going to get a DP credit at the end end of the film? (laughs) Probably. Yeah. (laughs) It's, and, and, you know, finding different ways to do it. Like we did an interview in Portland last month and found a location that was ventilated and sent two people in and, and created a, a way to mount a big monitor right where my head would be next to camera. And we did it over zoom. And yeah. uh, so it's like, you know, and, and you have to be kind to yourself that it's not exactly what the way you would have done it, but it, it is these times. And, and the important thing is that we're, we're doing it in a way that where no one's, you know, yeah. one's, you know, in danger and stuff like that. So that's been, that's been really interesting to go from a full staff and a big building and, and everyone's got their jobs to, to working this out. I mean, even the editing has been crazy. Like we've, I mean, I know this gets a little uh, inside baseball, but you know, the editor and I have two identical drives that get updated every day by a, you know, over we transfer. And, and I've had to learn, I've had to learn, editing software that I didn't think, you know, Avid and Premiere stuff, I didn't think I'd ever have to know so that, so that we can work and, and we can do it safely. And, and that's been a total education, but, um, but I kind of feel like my life prepared me for it a little bit, you know, like yeah. I was one man band for so long that this has been a, an interesting time for sure. Definitely. And uh, I had to ask about one shoot before we wrap up. Uh, you, you, you got to photograph Bob Dylan for the cover of Rolling Stone, man. Like that's like, that's just insane. Cause I mean, that guy doesn't do a lot of shoots, I think. And there's such a iconic legendary musician. Uh, how was your experience getting to work with Bob Dylan? Well, yeah, I got to do it twice. Well, I, I didn't, didn't realize that. Peppers, which is shocking. Cause the first one and, and the, the backstory on this is Bob Dylan growing up was my favorite artist. Uh, and, and, you know, I've, I, I really got into Bob Dylan and, and high school, a friend of mine got me into it and, and I just always, I was always there and loved him so much. And uh, so when I got the call from Rolling Stone, it was, I think 2008 or 2009, 
and the shoot was on my birthday and it was in Paris. Wow. And it was like, Hey, can you fly to Paris and photograph Bob Dylan on your, you know, your birthday? And, and it, it felt, you know, it was one of the few times in my career. The other time was when I got called for my first Vanity Fair cover, because that was always the thing. I was like, oh, when I do one of those, I'll know I've made it. And I didn't get one for so long that I passed that. Like, I was like, oh, I'm just never going to get one because yeah. Annie does all of them and Mark Seliger does the ones that she doesn't. And then I'm never going to get one, you know. And when it finally happened, it was almost anticlimactic. But when Rolling Stone called me to photograph Bob Dylan, I had that, I had just a little exhale of like, Oh, I made it. Yeah. I made, it. you know. Yeah, it's like where that where's my life right now? I'm flying to Paris to shoot Bob Dylan. Doesn't get any more gangster than that, man. <laughs> it was it was great. And and it was interesting because that shoot developed a rapport and a relationship with him that led to not only the next shoot, but also a documentary I made about him. And and it started out with I found this amazing location, this empty apartment in the eighth that was um that that felt like it hadn't changed since the 20s it you know it was just this empty beautiful bones of an apartment and it was a walk-up and i showed his publicist the day before and, the, and he's like bob's not gonna walk up four fl giant flights of stairs and i said yes come on and i knew enough to know that he has a gym he boxes i'm like yes this is the spot and i and i think part of that feeling of i've made it gave me the courage to tell this person like, yeah, this is where we're doing it. Yeah. Lock Bob into it. That's your job. And I'd never really been that way, but I felt so sure about this location. It just felt like the right place to do it. And sure enough, he came and he came up and he brought his guitar and, and I, I just, I decided to do the shoot that I'd want to do with him, not the shoot that I felt like I had to do or the one he'd agree to. And so I was just like, I'm just going to do what I want to do. So I said, I'd like to, photograph you playing music <laughs> so said, okay and he pulls his guitar out and starts singing and playing for me and and i'd like you know this and that and and um i don't think it's the greatest shoot of my life but it's it's i look at those pictures and they're some of my favorite pictures i've ever taken because um because they were they were true to what i love about photography what i love about him and what i love about you know the world what i'm into and so uh that was the greatest thing and and I got called two years later to photograph him again in Bilbao, Spain, uh, for another cover of Rolling Stone. Was that the one where he's got the hat and the like black uh, jacket? And yeah, and that time he was totally on board. And I found like he gave us a he gave us a, like a twelve hour photo shoot. And twelve I found all, hours. Yeah, I found all these locations all around, um, all around Spain. Uh, I think we started at like nine in the morning, and. I was at his hotel room. I think I was at his hotel room looking at pictures with him at 11 that night. It was, it was the longest day. We did the train station. We did a, like a, a gentleman's club that had billiards and, and uh, a weird solarium. And, and we did a, uh, we did this, we did this thing on a street, like a cobblestone street around the public. It was, it was crazy. The amount of trust he put into me and, and, it, it was just the strangest thing start to finish. Like I went to his hotel room the night before and met with him to talk about what we were going to do and ended up interviewing him for three hours about blonde on blonde. Wow. Was, which is, that, is, is, is that interview or was that for your documentary or is that somewhere else? Well, it was just, it, it, 
he just started talking about it and I started asking him questions. I think what he was doing was practicing for the interview he was going to give the next day with the Rolling or the next week with the Rolling Stone uh, writer. Wow. And I think he was practicing on me and I knew that whole history so much and I just kept asking him things. He told me this story about how when he was recording Blonde on Blonde in, um, uh, where was it? It was in the South, not at Muscle Shoals. It yeah. was, oh, it was in Nashville. And I think it was at RCA Studio A and, and he was walking around. He had long hair at a time when no one had long hair and someone threw a full can of Coke out a car window and hit him in the head wow. and yelled hippie at him. And he, you know, down on the ground and um, just, just, and, and the weirdest thing is when I walked into his hotel room, he was in his pajamas watching the polar express. <laughs> no joke. <laughs> I come in and say, have you, have you seen this movie? It's a great movie. Technology in this movie. I mean, yeah. wow. You know, and, and there he is and watching, there's Bob Dylan in Spain watching the Polar Express on the hotel TV. And uh, it was, it was a crazy experience. And then, and then I got the call to, to make a documentary about his basement tapes, like two years after that. What's that documentary called? I didn't realize you oh, made Lost that. Songs. Lost Songs? Lost Songs, the basement tapes continued. And um, it, I think it's still on the Showtime uh, Anytime app. It was, it aired on Showtime in, I think 2016 and it was a it was a film uh bob's archivist had found a bunch of lyrics that had never been set to music in a box and asked bob what they were and he said oh i wrote those at big pink in 1967 and uh and so uh t-bone burnett and myself and bob dylan put together a band that uh that took those lyrics and made them into music and we filmed that whole recording process. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So I, that, that whole arc with Bob was so unexpected and so exciting. And um, I got to do the same thing with Tom Petty and I, and some of my real musical, you know, uh, heroes that I, I hate to use the word heroes more like um, what's the word signpost guideposts uh, talisman. I, I don't know, yeah. but, but people that have influenced you and, and had an influence on, on the way you look at the world. And I, I, I lived long enough and they lived long enough to be able to, to work with them. And, and uh, that, that, th those things are why I, you know, probably became a photographer in the first place. Cause I, cause as a photographer, you, you want, you want to be around the people that, that interest you, excite you, raise your curiosity and, and collaborate with them. You know, yeah. I'm just I've, I just find musicians is really interesting for me when I look at all the art forms, like obviously I love photography, I love films, but I feel like when I think about it, like music is like the most impactful art form there is like it, it motivates you. You listen to it for whatever different moods you're in. When, when you look at films, like the, the music choice, this affects the film on so many different levels. Like I think for me, like music is this like the most impactful. I don't play any music, but any, anytime I get to photograph a musician or this, like I, I just think musicians are just incredible, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that, especially at a certain time in life when you were trying to make your own way in the world and, and you find artists that sort of make you feel like you're not alone in the way you see the world. Mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty powerful. And, and I think, I think the fact that 
music, you, you can make a soundtrack to your own life. And, and, you know, in a movie, a song is being used to manipulate your emotion. Yep. Which is very powerful and good and artistic. And I love that more than anything, but you can also, you know, I, I just remember taking mute, you know, I, I lived under headphones, uh, you know, for all of my travels and seeing a place for the first time while listening to something is, yeah, I, I would agree with you. I think it's super impactful. And, and I guess just to wrap up my last question for anybody listening, like uh, you've had a really interesting career thus far, like done a lot of different creative pursuits, be it photography, filmmaking, your show off camera, like what advice would you give to people listening um, that are interested in pursuing a, a career in the arts or creativity? What, what kind of, your, your lasting word for them, I guess. Oh gosh. I, I, uh, I think anyone, I do think if you're a creative and you're meant to be an artist or a creator, um, you're going to, you're going to do it because you like it. Yep. I think if you don't like it, you're probably not in the right place. Like if you're, if you're trying to be a photographer because you think that'd be a cool life, Oh, or you think that somehow you've been disillusioned to think that you'll make a bunch of money. Um, that's not the right pursuit. I, I do think that if the true test, of if you are going to have a creative life and if you're a creative person is, um, uh, is, is the, is the impulse to make things regular and because it feels good while doing it. I mean, one thing I know about me is that, the most enjoyment I get comes from the actual making of the thing. Like I enjoy making a film so much more than I enjoy showing it to people or, or having them tell me they liked it or watching it at the end, the discovery process and the making of things. I mean, for instance, I, I sometimes do these little wood carvings, these Japanese wood block printing. And I just started doing it uh, cause I saw it and I thought it'd be interesting. And, uh, I, I think I enjoy making it more than I enjoy the results. Just, just the sitting there, the carving out of the wood and the, like, there's something where, where time goes away for me while I'm making something. And though that's maybe that, maybe that's, I mean, it's probably a really Buddhist, really basic principle of Buddhism or Zen, but but the idea that that you can be totally in the present because you're you're engaged in making something. It's the same reason I like riding motorcycles because when I'm doing it, I can't think about anything else because if I did, I'd crash. So you get in this state where you're completely in the present and there's no judgment on you and there's no worry about the future. There's no regretting anything you did in the past. You're just right there. And, and it's, it's hard in, for me personally to find those moments unless I'm doing something like making something or, you know, and, and I, I hate the judgment part of it. I hate, I hate the selling part of it, all that, yeah. but all those things are, are part of it. So I would just say to anyone out there, um, if you love it, then every day it'll be like your, it'll be your education. It'll be your dessert. Yeah. It'll be your, your pastime and, um, and try to separate those things from, from the end result or the success. Like try not to try not to soil the, the good feeling of making something by having it have to, you know, pay off in some other way or, or, 
be judged by somebody else. Personal satisfaction. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're in a, we're in a weird place in the world where everything is out there and, and every, you know, Instagram and all those things are great work stares you in the face every time you pick up your phone and it, and it feels like a dime a dozen. And yeah, man. yeah that, 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 that's facts. I think it's hard. I think it's really hard now. I feel very lucky to come up in a time where, um, where seeing a great photograph was not an everyday occurrence. And, and, and when you saw one, it, it like sustained you and got you excited. There was no, there was never any danger of a, of a sensory overload. Yeah. Of creativity, you know? Yeah. Well, uh, Sam, man, I can't thank you enough. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Like I said, I've been listening and watching off camera for years. So it was a real pleasure to get to talk to you. And I can't thank you enough, man. Oh, I appreciate that. Thanks for, uh, thanks for your good questions. So there you have it. That was the Sam Jones interview. Uh, just want to thank Sam so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. It was real interesting to talk to him about everything he's done within his career. Uh, like I said, he's done a lot within filmmaking, photography, his Netflix show. Uh, just a really creative guy. Um, so can't thank him enough. Uh, definitely go check out Sam's work. His website is samjonespictures.com. As well as on Instagram, you can follow him at samjonespictures. I'll put the link in the description. Uh, but you can find all his stuff right there. And as always, um, I'll be having weekly podcasts every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the Photo Banter YouTube page. Uh, so definitely go check us out on YouTube. Hit the subscribe button as it'd be much appreciated. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for listening. Take care.